Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Mark Calabri, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies uh, here at the Cato Institute, honored to serve as the moderator of today's book forum. Um, since all of our other panelists were prof are, are active professors rather than myself, I specifically engineered it so that nobody would sit in the front row so they could feel, <laughs> like, they're, feel like they've actually got a classroom experience. Um, back to the topic at hand. So in my uh, day job here at Cato, I spent a whole lot of time thinking about the financial crisis, products and services related to the financial crisis. And today is actually a real treat for me because I get to think about products that actually don't cause crises or haven't yet <laughs> so far. Um, you know, because what everyone thinks about credit cards or payday, loans, uh, check cashing and such, um, I haven't seen any evidence that they contribute to macroeconomic instability. Uh, it might also be for that reason that they receive considerably less attention, uh, both in academia and among policymakers. Of course, there's nothing as sexy as studying financial crises, right? Uh, and so despite having no connection, as far as I can tell, to the recent financial crisis, uh, the Dodd-Frank Act does set up a new consumer agency, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which extends federal regulation and supervision to financial products that had largely been the, the purview of state regulation or enforcement by the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, to sort of reinforce the, the difference we see in consumer finance and other products, you could easily find half a dozen or so good textbooks on principles of mortgage finance. Not very hard to do. You would be hard pressed prior to the publication of this book to find a comparable book on consumer credit generally. It really has been a sort of academic desert. And it's really this niche that the authors of consumer credit in the American economy are trying to fill. Uh, my own opinions, I think they've done so quite successfully. Uh, I expect this book to become the standard text in courses in consumer finance. Uh, we are very fortunate to have one of the four authors with us today, uh, Todd Zwicky, who currently serves as professor of law at George Mason University. Uh, I think if I'm counting right, um, three of the other four authors are economists. So uh, this is certainly a book that mixes law and economics uh, in the area of consumer finance in, 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 I think, a very important way. Todd has also had the advantage of actually having served in some policymaking roles. He was the director of the Office of Policy Planning at the Federal Trade Commission, which, as I mentioned, prior to the creation of the CPB, really was the primary enforcer of consumer finance laws in the United States. Uh, most importantly of all, I think, and I'm sure that Todd would agree with this, uh, he also serves as an adjunct scholar here at Cato. Uh, our first discussant uh, will be Heidi Sooner, who serves as professor at Catholic University's Columbus School of Law. Uh, and Heidi is certainly one of the most widely published scholars in the area of financial regulation. Uh, our final discussant will be uh, Tony Yazer, who serves as professor of economics at the George Washington University, where he also directs GW Center for Economic Research. Uh, you know, I've been reading Tony's work for a very long time, uh, and certainly he has, some of his publications have been at the forefront, particularly of empirical analysis of the operation of consumer credit markets. So I think it's very fitting uh, that he offers some reflections in that area as well. So I want to thank you, for everybody, for coming out, uh, and I want to thank all of our panelists and hand the podium over to Todd. Thanks, Mark. Um, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And I want to thank Tony and Heidi for coming out to um, give their thoughts on the book. And uh, I do want to say what an honor it was to be named a uh, Cato adjunct scholar, which occurred after the publication of the book uh, uh, or went to final galleys. But that's um, obviously Cato's the um, the mecca for uh, people who see the world like uh, like I do. And it's a, it was a real honor uh, and treat to be uh, included in that club. So I'm going to talk for about 20 minutes or so today. Uh, it's a big book. I'm not going to try to outline everything in the book. 
But, um, but what I'm going to try to do is give you a sense of how we think about consumer credit and how I think we should think about consumer credit. Because um, as Mark mentioned, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has gotten up and running. And one of the distinctive things about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is its interaction with the theory of behavioral economics and the application of behavioral economics to these, uh, to these ideas. Uh, and that is an area that is uh, kind of proliferated in economics and especially a law in economics over the past few years. And I think one of the reasons that, and, and it's pretty terrible stuff uh, to, be, uh, to be frank, but one of the reasons that this terrible stuff is kind of out there is because people forgot about that there's, this has been an issue for a long time. Consumer credit's been around in a major way in the United States for a century. Uh, and uh, people have been studying it for a century. And we have a well-established way of thinking about consumer credit. And one of the things we try to do in this book is give a, a sense of how you should think about consumer credit, or to put it another way, what the null hypothesis should be about how uh, people use consumer credit and look back at the model uh, that we've seen over time. And so um, while in my remarks, I'm not going to talk specifically about behavioral economics because I don't have time. What I'm going to talk about is first, um, uh, some of the surprising things that come out of the book uh, in terms of how consumers have used credit, and then talk briefly about the uh, uh, way to think about consumer credit regulation that we discuss in the book and um, the potential unintended consequences of consumer regulation, which is obviously very, very, very relevant to the modern policy debate. So um, we're all familiar with the kind of um, rhetoric, uh, newspaper headlines, that sort of thing that we always hear about consumer credit. So this is just some random things I pulled from various sources over time. Uh, <clears throat> credit is the latest ally of the debtor, of, of the devil. It is the great tempter. The two words charge have done more harm than any others in the language. They have led to a vast amount of unnecessary buying. New York Times uh, headline, Americans are running in debt. Americans are borrowing trouble. We see a whole bunch of different ones here, even including academic um, discussion, such as um, the Commercial Law Journal. The luxuries of the last generation are deemed to be necessities. The person who can't pay is never less assured by high-pressure sales talk that can do so by easy weekly or monthly payments, which only come to a few cents a day. So we're all familiar with their head, these headlines. What you may not be familiar with is that the New York Times headlines are written in the 1870s. Uh, the uh, um, uh, the uh, book uh, was written in uh, 1912. The theory of conspicuous consumption, namely that people use debt to finance a lifestyle that is beyond their means just to keep up with the Joneses, that was coined in 1899. Uh, so, um, so as long as we've had consumer credit, we've had people who are concerned about how other people are using consumer credit. And there's a reality, uh, and what is that reality? Are we right about uh, how other people use consumer credit, or how do we? So let's talk about how we do it. And this is a more recent version. Um, uh, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, when she was a professor, kind of um, uh, gives a, a, a new variation of it, right? Uh, the credit card industry is no evidence that people were being turned down for loans in the early 1980s. What they have is evidence that people more often in the early 1980s preferred to pay cash uh, than pay on credit. Well, is that true? Uh, well, one of the things we look at in the book uh, is some of this history. Some of this is not specifically in the book, but it's covered, and I figured I'd make it more interesting for you. This is one advertisement uh, from uh, 1888 in the New York World newspaper. Um, Carperwaite's, uh, um, it's not exactly clear what these guys sell, right? Because it appears that what they sell is credit. Uh, and uh, uh, Pizzer and Harris, uh, uh, they uh, sell suits and that sort of thing. But obviously, credit matters. Copper waste, reliable carpets. Anybody will sell you a carpet when times are good, but come to us, we'll sell you a carpet on credit for the average wage earner and that sort of thing, right? Uh, credit, credit, credit. Uh, this is 1895. So 
What I want to talk about for a few minutes is why consumers use credit. <clears throat> Secondly, how have consumers used credit uh, after World War II? And then third, turn to these regulatory issues. So one of the points we try to make in the book is that there's a misconception of how consumers use credit. Um, the idea is, is that consumer credit has traditionally been criticized as simply consumers shifting consumption from the future to the present, and it's basically a zero-sum game, that, uh, that basically you're eating your seed corn when you borrow on consumer credit. And obviously, we hear a lot of this in the rhetoric of uh, people like uh, Senator, uh, Senator Warren. What we lay out in the book is a well-established model that goes back uh, almost a century that talks about credit in another way. And the way I want you to think about it is, first think about why businesses use credit. Because people understand why businesses use credit. They do it for primarily two reasons. The first is to invest in capital goods, right? You could get 10 guys to dig a, um, a ditch with, a, with shovels, or you could buy a backhoe. Uh, you could finance the backhoe, and out of the savings, uh, you could um, both pay for the backhoe and become more productive and turn a profit. You could get a new printing press. You could uh, invest in a new delivery van, right? There's, we know all the time how businesses use credit to invest in capital goods. Secondly, they use it to smooth income and expenses, which is, you know, there's a reason why Black Monday is called Black, or, uh, Black Friday is called Black Friday, right? Black Monday is something very different, obviously. Uh, Black Friday, right? Which is you basically run in the red the whole year up to that point. You basically operate on credit, and then you make it up and pay it back on the back end uh, during the end of the year, right? Times go up and down. You don't lay off your workers or hire new workers. You use credit to smooth your income and expenses. Well, it turns out consumers use credit for the same reason. The overwhelming reason consumers use credit is to invest in capital goods, whether it's a house, student loans to improve your human capital, same idea in theory at least, right? Borrow in order to increase your human capital, pay it back out of your higher earnings. But what we may, uh, uh, what we may not realize is that consumer durables are the same thing. Think about something as simple as a washing machine. Uh, what is the value of a washing machine? It's not having to schlep to the laundromat every Saturday night with a, a pocket full of quarters, right? You can, it, it, it makes sense to buy a washing machine or a refrigerator or a stove or a television or you name it on credit, right? These are all capital goods that basically are investments that consumers can uh, pay back. And if you want to get a sense of how this works, think about a car. Uh, I got really interested in this uh, when uh, during the auto bailout uh, period, obviously. And one of the things that people wondered was, you know, it's kind of interesting how quickly General Motors overtook Ford as America's largest car dealer. And a lot of people said, well, it's because General Motors had more stylish cars and that sort of thing. Well, that was part of it. But that wasn't all of it. In 1925, General Motors rolled out the General Motors Acceptance Corp, uh, which basically allowed people to borrow money to buy a car and finance the car. Ford responded by rolling out the Ford buy a car on layaway plan. Now, if you think of how absurd it is to buy a car on layaway, right? Basically, you could send in a check every month to Ford, and after 10 years or so, after you saved up enough, you could buy a car, right? Meanwhile, ride the bus, right? It doesn't make any sense, right? It, it very quickly, you recognize that something like a car is a capital good in the same way a backhoe is for business. And it makes sense to, uh, to finance those. Sure, people can overuse credit. People could always overuse credit. But the overwhelming uh, reason why people use credit is to get these capital goods. And, uh, and, and credit cards are really just the latest story in this, which is what Professor Warren was alluding to is credit cards. We know over time credit card ownership has uh, risen dramatically. And we know over time the credit card debt has risen dramatically. But that's only part of the story. If you look at the uh, so-called debt service ratio, and we present this in the book, and this is 
the uh, percentage of household income dedicated every month to uh, uh, payments on their debt, what we see is that over time, going back to 1980, which uh, Professor Warren was referring to, the debt service ratio has remained constant over time. So what, uh, uh, so what you see here is the top line is uh, the total debt service ratio. That's a bit misleading on this one because the pink line is the mortgage debt service ratio, which you all know took off around 2001. What I want to focus on is the yellow line and the blue line, the non-revolving and the revolving. The non-revolving is installment loans, uh, car loans, uh, student loans, and the like. Revolving is credit cards. And if we just take those two and combine them, what we see is that the overall debt service ratio in 19, uh, uh, today is the same as it was in 1982. Well, how can that be? Well, if you just take those two lines on consumer debt, what you see is the uh, rise in credit card debt is almost a perfect substitute for a decline in installment debt. Now, how can that be? Well, think about it. In 1974, if you wanted to buy a washing machine, what would you do? You go down to the local appliance store, you'd open up a line of credit, you'd pay it on time, maybe $25 a month until it was paid off. If you needed $300 for a car repair, what would you do? You go to the local personal finance company, you open up a line of credit, pay it off, say $75 a month or whatever the numbers are until it was paid off. If you wanted a bedroom set, you'd put it on time. If you needed clothing, you'd uh, uh, open a credit account with the department store, right? We don't do that anymore. If you need $300 for car repair, you put it on your credit card. If you need to buy a washing machine, you put it on your credit card. If you need clothing, you put it back for back to school, you put it on your credit card, right? And credit cards have simply then replaced all those various forms of credit we used to have, these various installment loans, retail store loans, uh, and the like. Why? Simply because credit cards are better. Credit cards are simply a, a more efficient, less expensive, and more useful way than borrowing than a personal finance company or a bank loan uh, or a, a retail store uh, or, or something like that. And that's basically what we're seeing here. Um, and even if you look at the debt of bankruptcy filers, this is not in the book, but this sort of supplements it, we see the same thing, which is when this is taken from Professor, uh, uh, Senator Warren's own research, snapshots of bankruptcy filers over time. And she looks at this and she looks at that little tiny blue line and she says, oh my goodness, no wonder bankruptcies went up. Credit card debt has gone up fivefold over this period. But what do you know? Total debt is not. Why? The same exact same substitution effect has taken place at lower income levels as they've gotten more access to credit cards, at least until the Credit Card Act of 2009 took them all away from, uh, from those people. But, uh, but they've had the same effect of getting access to credit cards has replaced all these other motley forms of credit that people used to, uh, to use. Now, this is another measure, not quite as good of a measure, but it goes back further. This is the ratio of consumer credit, non-mortgage debt again, to household assets. And what we see is a dramatic rise starting around 1945, but by about 1965, we reach a pretty steady, uh, pretty steady state, right? Now, what might be going on here? Well, there's another chart that you can superimpose on this that's sort of interesting. That's the household, that's the home ownership rate, right? Consumer credit, I've, I've said before, consumer credit was the Conestoga wagon of Levittown, right? which is after World War II, when people migrated to the suburbs, what they got was the American dream, and that was financed on credit. They got a mortgage for a three-bedroom house, a car, modern appliances, you name it, right? In fact, back in the day, some older folks may remember this, do you remember buying encyclopedias on credit? One letter a month? 
<laughs> right? People used to buy everything on credit, sporting goods, hardware, encyclopedias, pianos, radios, you name it. Going all the way back to the 20s, 30s, 40s, people uh, were using credit. And basically what happened is uh, um, after the war, it exploded. And basically by 1965 or so, we reach a steady state and credit cards have simply changed the, uh, the composition. So let me, in my last couple of minutes remaining, talk about um, how to think about regulation in light of this, right? Which is first, obviously what this means is people use credit to make their lives better. And sometimes people overuse credit, but let's not ignore the fact that how people use credit is rational. The way people use credit is just the same way businesses use credit, which is to buy uh, uh, consumer goods, you know, capital goods, uh, smooth income and expenses and that sort of thing. So how do we think about regulation in light of this? And this is uh, the topic, a uh, subject of chapter 11 in the book. We can think of regulation as having its intended effect. Say, if you limit interest rates, interest rates won't go above the statutory ceiling. But it also has three unintended effects. You could call it term repricing, sub uh, product substitution, and rationing, and sometimes a fourth. So how does this work? Term repricing is something you may have heard before, which is um, like squeezing a balloon, right? You can say you can't charge above, say, 10% uh, uh, interest on a credit card. But that's going to pop up somewhere if that's below the market rate. Traditionally, where it popped up was in annual fees. This is just a list of things, a list of terms I just thought of one day sitting in my office um, uh, that you could adjust on a credit card. Traditionally, that's where annual fees came from, was that we had uh, limits on uh, interest uh, uh, rates. And in order to make up for it, they basically imposed an annual fee on credit cards. So why was credit card ownership so low in the 1970s? Basically because usury ceilings uh, interfered with the ability to charge a market rate of interest in a, in a lot of states. Um, so you get term repricing. Things uh, substitute one for another. Um, uh, and, and usury regulations are especially troublesome on credit cards because it has a second effect, which is a dynamic effect, which is I have in my wallet, I have four credit cards. Every time I stop to buy a tank of gas, my credit card companies are competing for my business. That is an amazing thing. I, I, there's no other good or service in which I interact with in which every single time I make a purchase, I've got four people who want my business so bad that they're going to not only give it to me, but sometimes give, give me a subsidy, right, uh, in some sense, by giving cash back, right? Why is that? Because I, there, I don't pay an annual fee. If I had to pay an annual fee, I wouldn't be carrying four credit cards, and they wouldn't be competing for my business that way. So that's what I mean by the dynamic effect. Credit cards, bank-issued credit cards, have also unleashed competition in the retail sector. It used to be only department stores could afford the cost and risk of operating a credit operation. Uh, now, uh, uh, that unhitches it. So we get internet shopping. We get all the sorts of things that we can get uh, from, uh, from credit cards. Um, a second effect is product substitution. And this is just one, uh, one study that uh, uh, gives you a sense of it. But basically, the, historically, one of the reasons why we had so much retail credit was product substitution. Why was that? Because while credit card issuers could readjust interest rates on the uh, annual fees, retailers had an even better idea, which is what? Take the credit losses and bury it in the price of the goods. So for instance, a refrigerator cost um, uh, 8% more in Arkansas, which had very strict usury regulations versus Texas. Retail store credit was much higher in, uh, uh, in uh, states that had strict usury ceilings, which is basically what this shows. Right? It's substituted to a less efficient form of credit. 
Second thing you get is product substitution. So for instance, again, Arkansas, and I like picking on Arkansas because they have such stupid laws. Um, <laughs> Arkansas had a 10% usury ceiling, the strictest in the country. Arkansas was also the pawn shop capital of America. People couldn't get a credit card, but three times as many people use pawn shops in Arkansas. That remains the case today, although a lot of people now just drive across the border to Mississippi and places like that to get personal loans. But pawn shops, product substitution. If you can't get credit cards, you use pawn shops. Or today, what are we saying? Well, since the financial crisis and regulations have limited access to credit cards, payday lending is boomed. I saw one guy who runs an installment loan company who said, because of the Credit Card Act, these are personal finance uh, companies, his average FICO score has gone from 560 to 620. Basically, that is the tranche that lost their credit cards because of the Credit Card Act of 2009. They've simply substituted over to uh, installment loans. Others have substituted to payday loans. They uh, go away, right? The third thing is rationing. Maybe you can't substitute a, to a pawn shop. The third thing is you can't get legal credit at all. And this is a real thing. Uh, it's pretty remarkable to think about this. Um, I'd like to, you to meet my, uh, uh, Mr. Anthony Fat Tony Salerno. Uh, uh, this is a 1973 New York Daily News headline. Uh, Fat Tony uh, was the head of the uh, Genovese um, uh, crime family in New York City. And when he was indicted in 1973 for 14 counts of loan sharking, and yes, one count of criminal solicitation to have someone's legs broken. Uh, Fat Tony was running $80 million a day in his territory in loan sharking operations in New York City. That's $463 million in today's operations that, uh, uh, that Fat Tony uh, himself was running in loan sharking in 1973, in the good old days that, uh, that uh, uh, Professor Warren liked so much. Um, uh, the U.S. Senate did a report in 1968 that uh, identified loan sharking as the second largest revenue source of the mafia, trailing only illegal gambling, except loan sharking was more profitable, so they it, it reinvested their gambling revenues in loan sharking uh, because they could make more money off of it. 1968, Richard Nixon's presidential nomination acceptance speech had a specific plank saying that he was going to go after the loan sharks, right? This is a real thing. Uh, you can't wish away the need for credit. Um, let me close with this then. I think we have a lesson here from history that we try to leave with in the book that is relevant to 2008. Stop me if you've heard this story before. Basically what happened is the beginning of the 20th century, people m migrated into the cities from the farms and immigrants came into the cities. And they ran into the first time things like uh, unemployment, serial, you know, cyclical unemployment from, uh, uh, and layoffs and that sort of thing. And they needed credit to make ends meet. And what happened is that they turned to loan sharks. They turned to loan sharks. This is one example. In 1911, 35% of New York City employees were estimated to have owned, earned, uh, owed money to loan sharks. Far-sighted uh, uh, reformers looked at the economics of this and said, you know, it'd be better off to have high-cost loans than to have people getting their legs broken. And they deregulated consumer credit. The problem being that after the Great Depression, a lot of people, you may not have known this, but a lot of people blamed the Great Depression in part on too much access to consumer credit. They brought in all these strict usury regulations and other limitations on competition, such that, as we saw by 1973, it, uh, 1968, it was the second largest revenue source of the mafia. In the beginning of the 70s, consumer ad advocates recognized that this was counterproductive to have people getting their legs broken by loan sharks, and they allowed more deregulation, <clears throat> deregulation of credit cards and that sort of thing, which led to, of course, 2008 and this lumping in of mortgage problems with all this other sort of stuff. 
And we've had, in response to that, the most unbelievable assault of economically illiterate uh, um, regulation that I've ever seen in my uh, life. Uh, we've taken away credit cards. We've taken away bank accounts through the Durbin Amendment, uh, um, driven people out of the mainstream financial system. Meanwhile, payday loans and uh, pawn shops have proliferated. What's the CFPB's next target? Payday loans, right? Only in Washington does booming demand for product mean that you've got to get rid of it, uh, right? Uh, so they're going to take away payday loans, and we know what happens when you take away payday loans. People bounce checks, they get evicted, uh, uh, and the like. We're relearning painfully the lessons of history, uh, and hopefully it won't be uh, quite as painful as it's been in the past. Thanks. Thank you, Todd. Um, I'm so happy to be here, Todd. Oh, you want me to? Whichever is more comfortable. Oh, okay. for you. Yeah. I'm happy to. Ah, actually, I will stay. You were right on time. Okay. Todd, this is really an extraordinary achievement. Um, the book is so comprehensive from a macro, micro history, legal policy. Uh, I, I I read it in the last few days, <laughs> so <Take> we <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but I know that I will uh, refer to it over and over again. Uh, and it really gave me the urge to whip up my visa and buy a durable good. That's, a, <laughs> that's the impulse that it gave me. Uh, so I have mostly questions, uh, a few observations, and they're sort of roughly in three categories. So uh, the first category of questions, sort of observations, is about being right. Uh, uh, as I have aged, I have reflected on uh, the importance of being right. And uh, I've come to realize that it's actually not uh, always important for the person who is correct to have the loudest voice. So as I was reading your book, I was thinking about that. I was thinking, you know, is this really a good thing to correct this delusion uh, that we have about uh, consumer credit, which I, I think you, you know, very aptly sort of set forth the uh, correction of the basic facts. So I, I ultimately come to the conclusion that it's quite appropriate to correct the delusion. But I want to take you through my thought process a little bit. So I thought about what benefits we might have from being deluded about uh, the growth of consumer credit uh, over time, or at least in recent history. Uh, and I was, as I understand the research, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe what you're saying is that uh, consumer credit is pro-cyclical, and so that it expands, which is, you know, makes a lot of sense, uh, expands when the economy is strong and contracts when the economy is weaker. And it made me think about whether or not this, you know, sort of conventional wisdom about uh, consumer credit being bad actually has a countercyclical effect that might be good. Uh, at least in the upswing. It's not going to be good in the downswing, but, uh, but at least in the upswing does this uh, delusion about you know, outstanding uh, balances and the uses of credit actually sort of temper that, uh, that um, you know, the, the natural swings in outstanding debt. So I thought about that. Uh, that was really the only benefit I could come up with. But I'd be curious to hear if you have any thoughts about that. Um, obviously, the central tenant of the book and the central contribution of the book, I think, is the downside of, uh, of misunderstanding the role of consumer credit. And I really see it as uh, the downside being that we would misallocate our regulatory resources. So I don't think anybody believes we're not going to regulate credit. I mean, as you've said, we have 
uh, it goes back to ancient times that we've uh, felt the need to regulate consumer credit. So I really think about it uh, in terms of uh, allocating those regulatory resources more toward uh, fraud, uh, misallocation of credit for uh, for reasons that really uh, relate to fraud. Obviously, we are going to disagree on what's fraudulent. Uh, just your book talks about defining predatory lending. You know, put ten people in the room and they can't uh, decide on what's predatory and what's not. So we, we it doesn't mean that that's easy, but at least we know that there you know there are some areas that are deserving of regulation and, and perhaps this bulk helps us understand that that's really where we should focus our attention. Um, I do want to say with respect to the uh, value of credit cards that I think regulation does play into the value of credit cards at least in the form of uh, the truth in lending laws with respect to unauthorized use of credit cards. So I always tell my students, despite the fact that I don't want to encourage them to run up their credit cards, that they should use their credit cards to pay for everything <laughs> because you have such better protection uh, against unauthorized use than uh, than you do with other payment systems. So so that's just a, a an interesting sidelight to your uh, cheerleading on uh, on credit cards. Uh, so. My first observations were about on being right, and my next observations are about are you right? Uh, and you know, I'm not an economist, just a lawyer, so I'm not trained in collecting or interpreting data. But I just had a couple of things that I wonder about, and they really are questions. So I think the book is very clear about we're not talking about mortgage uh, debt. And I think I understand why that, you know, that's a whole other topic. But I have to say that to me, it was like the elephant in the room. I, I want to understand the consumer credit alongside the mortgage uh, credit. And so, so I just wonder, you know, and, and I could be giving you that comment that uh, I get on my own research, which is particularly annoying, where someone says, I really wish you had wrote, written this book, not this book. Uh, so it could just be that you just decided, you know, this project is big enough, and we can't include that mortgage data. But it does sneak in to some parts of your discussion. So I'm interested how you made that calculation, when, when to talk about uh, mortgage credit and when to not talk about mortgage, mortgage credit. Uh, another thing about the data as I understood the data in the book and one of your slides, uh, a central takeaway from the book is that uh, consumer credit as compared to assets has not changed uh, since the 1960s. Um, and you explained a lot of that relates to suburbanization. Um, this leaves me wondering about assets. As I'll talk about in a minute, my research really focuses on the supply side uh, and much more on the solvency of financial institutions. And when I think about a financial institution's uh, financial health, I'm much more concerned about the asset side of the balance sheet than the liability side. So I'm just curious whether there's any research on whether the allocation of assets in households has changed because if the riskiness of that of those assets have changed over time, and I have no idea whether that's true, but that would concern me because even if the overall uh, uh, ratio of debt to assets has remained constant, I want to know about about those assets uh, because that certainly affects um, the fragility of any of any balance sheet. So, so that really is just a question. Okay, so my first category was on being right. My second category was on, 
are you right? My third category, I'm really just being silly now, is let's talk about supply side, right? <laughs> just because I wanted to use that word again. Um, so as I mentioned, my research is really focuses on suppliers of credit, uh, in particular commercial banks. Uh, and I realize that really the supply side is not a central focus of this book. You do talk about suppliers of credit, but you're not focused on how it impacts their solvency. You're really more focused on, on the consumer, and I, and I think quite rightly. Uh, but because I want to make it all about me, I, um, I wonder whether in your research you found uh, anything that would suggest that uh, these misconceptions about consumer credit have uh, left us with regulatory policies that perhaps overemphasize the importance of certain suppliers versus others. So for example, if I'm guessing, do we focus too much of our regulatory resources on large financial institutions, the, the big credit card banks, and payday lenders, and not on community banks, for example, so that what happens is we write the rules for those suppliers and then misallocate or misdirect uh, those, uh, those uh, regulations towards community banks, which may not have any of the same or may not have similar types of issues in terms of providing uh, credit. So, you know, I'm sure you're familiar uh, with sort of a common complaint, an old complaint from community banks responding to the Community Reinvestment Act. Uh, that, you know, they sort of said, Community Reinvestment Act, <laughs> that's, who we, that's who we lend to. So why should we, this is just paperwork, why should we have to uh, spend all these compliance costs proving that we lend to our customers? Uh, and that really that law is much more focused on national banks that, uh, that may not have investment in particular communities. I don't know if your research sort of, I would be interested, because it's a particular interest of me, the uh, community banks, uh, whether your, your research plays into uh, any of those concerns at all. So uh, finally, I just, and I'm done with my uh, cute titles. Uh, uh, I just want to uh, add that um, I think that you need other iterations of this book to, uh, so that the word can get out. And you, you might not like this idea, but I really think it's right for the Washington Post's five myths about. Uh, so I, I could come up with three just off the top of my head. And um, so I, I really think that would be a, a wonderful thing to do with this book. And then the other thing is, what is the deal with Title Max? So uh, the 7-Eleven that I have been going to since high school in Arlington is now a Title Max, and I seem to see a Title Max on every corner. I, the demand for Title Loans, is that because we're constraining the payday lenders? If you can tell me about Title Max, uh, I learned how they operate from your book, which I found fascinating. It's really a fascinating kind of lending product, uh, but I'd love to hear more about Title Max. Thank you. Thank you, Heidi. Uh, I think I, I think I might even know some people at the Washington Post. Huh? <laughs> you do. Right there. So how do I get my slides loaded up? Um, they should be coming up. Oh, they're coming up next? Yeah, they should be. Okay, so let's see. There we go. You should better click on yours. Oh, somebody did it for me. There Excellent. Yeah, it's like magic. Okay. So I'm going to have uh, four points. I'm going to begin with a disclaimer. I'll try to characterize the book. <coughs> I'm going to discuss some topics that are neglected but not omitted, 
and then two topics that uh, are omitted from the book, which I, I would have included. Okay, uh, disclaimer, potential contra uh, conflict of interest. I've known all the authors for many years. And in fact, uh, Staten and Ellihausen were former colleagues at, at George Washington University. But never fear, uh, I know these guys want me to be brutally honest. <laughs> and besides, I am brutally honest. <laughs> I can vouch for that. Assumption <laughs> of the risk is- Next, our, uh, uh, yes, control. exactly. Uh, so the next element is, I've been doing this teaching and consulting and what have you and advising for many years uh, as a trained economist, and I've come to some conclusions. The uh, world is divided into two kinds of people, economists <laughs> and muggles. I, I mean this seriously, okay? And I mean, I, look, I have students you just never reach. You just never get the idea. Um, period. <laughs> uh, actually, the student who gets the highest grade on my midterm and final gets a Hogwarts cap and scarf. <laughs> it's the most coveted economic award at George Washington University. Awesome. Yes. Okay, so economists care about, well, actually, I should have said productivity, efficiency, and we care about poverty. And we believe in price rationing through markets. Muggles care about, well, first place, they have no idea what efficiency is to begin with. Uh, but uh, they care about something called fairness and inequality. They will occasionally tolerate a market process, but they become violent if you put a toll on a congested highway. <laughs> okay, they really can become violent. So you have to be careful. So in judging this book, I'm gonna comment on the appeal to uh, both, uh, both groups. Okay, characterize the group. Well, it's longer than uh, capital in the 20th century, but not by much. <laughs> All right, so is it a reference book? And the answer is, wow, yes. Yeah, this is a book you have on your shelf and you can look up things. Is it a textbook? At $41, you gotta be kidding me. Yes, it's a steal. And uh, <laughs> instructors should really give this strong consideration. It's actually possibly a substitute to make a money and banking course interesting. Is it a good background for professionals? Yes. Yeah, excellent background for professionals. Uh, what about non-professionals? Well, here you go. I mean, here I'm not so sure. I don't think we're gonna reach muggles uh, with, this, uh, uh, with this book. Okay, so here we go, no, neglected but omitted. So under that, I have five things that I, I think are neglected but not omitted. The first one is, the literature on why uh, credit lenders specialize, okay? Uh, this argument is implicit in the discussion of non-price ration in the book, but really not made, okay? Look, the muggles think there's something very, very suspicious about the fact that, you know, really high-income people, higher than you lot, get serviced by one group, and then there's you, and then we go down the line, and there's a whole group of specialized lenders. And this makes them very, very suspicious of what's going on, right? Well, there's a literature on why this is the case, okay? The reason it's the case is very simple, and I can explain it in a couple of sentences, although I have done it with lots of mathematics. But uh, in a couple of sentences, uh, but you know, you can't publish a couple of this. Okay, a general lender has to underwrite all applicants all applicants, this is very expensive. A specialized lender only underwrites the applicants that come to their door. Accordingly, specialized lenders can underwrite at a much lower cost. Self-selection in credit markets 
is extremely valuable. And a generalized lender is just always uncompetitive because they have to. And what happens, by the way, all the banks that offer, you know, they'll offer a high risk credit line through the same windows and doors and things like that. And their overall credit quality, quality just goes in the toilet because everybody applies to them and they have to write underwrite everybody. And then every time they make a mistake, they lose their shirt. OK, so the reason you specialize is just because you have to, period, in order to be efficient. Of course, economists are the only ones who care about efficiency. So I understand why the muggles are upset. OK, why is regulation of consumer credit different? Well, in some sense, I mean, it, it is there are some senses in which it's, it's the uh, it's the same. Um, there is a general concession by the muggles that quantity discounts are not discriminatory. So that if I want to buy the five pound pack of steak, I pay a lower price per pound than if I buy one pound of steak. And the same way, uh, obviously APR tends to fall with loan size. That's not a problem, okay? So that's an, not even a regulatory concern. We all agree on that. They actually, ooh, okay. All right. What's different about consumer credit is that high-income individuals pay less. That's the real problem. High-income individuals pay less. Okay? And generally speaking, high-income individuals pay more, but they get more quality, and actually, in some cases, the price per unit quality may go down if you're higher income. But this is the one that just riles people. Okay? It just, I, you know, what can you say? This is, you know, you have to acknowledge this. Okay, obviously this, you know, this is cost-based. In addition, by the way, to the default loss, there's a much higher cost of underwriting high-income individuals. So as a result of compensation regulation of mortgage bankers, in some states, the mortgage banking number of mortgage brokers who are actually available, excuse me, brokers who are actually available, has fallen by 80%. What brokers did we lose? We lost all the brokers who would work with the low-income people. Because the only way you can work with a low-income person is by taking a lot of time and by realizing that after you've invested three months, you find out they were lying to you. And <laughs> what is your commission on a loan? Excuse me, I didn't know, I thought, okay. What is your commission on a loan which is never endorsed? Zero. And that's the cost that they never see. So unfortunately, we've already lost an awful lot of the loan officers who will work with a low-income person. I mean, there's just nobody who will come to your house and, and, and fill out your mortgage application in the kitchen. Or if you come in and you have a box of receipts, th there's no one who will work with you anymore. See, these people not only don't get mortgages, but then all the people who have sold their houses to them have no buyers except the hedge funds, which are buying them and renting them. And that's what's happened in communities all over the United States, and it's a tragedy. Too bad, it's a tragedy. We predicted it! <laughs> you know, I mean, this is all predictable. Shooting yourself in the foot is all predictable. But obviously, muggles never connect the dots. Okay. Consumers do not understand the products they're buying, and that's a problem with credit, right? And in fact, one of the things is they fear certain application of credit or remedies. Oh gosh, could this be in the contract? This also applies to other goods though, the fact that you don't understand the good. Uh, I don't understand anything about tires. 
Does that mean that retreads are illegal? No, I can buy a retreaded tire, right? I can buy all kinds of tires. There's no minimum quality attire. There's no alarm about subprime tires. Oh, my God. I'll tell you what, when you're driving along, the guy next to you is on a subprime tire. You have an issue. Why? What's the difference? Oh, my gosh. Well, the NTSA rates the tires for tread traction and temperature, right? And also, retreads are completely labeled. And when I go out, I always make sure that I buy an A for tread uh, sorry, an A for traction and, and, and an A for temperature. And then being a cheapskate, I, I, I save on treadwear. Okay? <laughs> but my point is, you don't understand anything about tires. It's not a problem. We deal with it, don't we? The only way muggles know there are no prepayment penalties in their contract is if you make them illegal. So we have this insanity in which we've made prepayment penalties illegal. Okay? Who benefits from that? Well, the answer is people who want to flip houses or only live in the neighborhood for a year, they benefit from the lack of a prepayment penalty. All the people who are long-term stable, who it's our national policy to encourage to get a mortgage, they have to pay more because we ban prepayment penalties. Okay? This is, okay, I have a scale on the looniness scale. This is almost a perfect 10. <laughs> But it makes sense when you understand that the people have no clue as to what's going, you know, they can't read the, so they say, well, let's just ban it. We don't care about all the other consequences. We're scared of prepayment penalties. We'll be hiding under the, you know. Okay. There is no type A credit card or type A mortgage with standard terms in our society. We don't do that. We have a type A tire, and believe it, tires are complex, right? I mean, for traction, I have no idea. There's the rubber and the steel, and the steel belts or the aluminum belts or whatever <coughs> they're putting in there. And, and uh, my gosh, this is extremely complex traction of a tire, and yet I have no problem determining that. Okay, who's to blame? Neglected but not omitted. Who's to blame for the lack of standardized consumer credit products? Why don't we have any of them? Industry, yes. When I worked on the credit practices rule, I found that the industry was against banning creditor remedies that they never used. <laughs> I said, you would never use these remedies. They're only used in Terorum by shysters. Why do you want to ban them? Oh, yeah, can't do that. You know, got to ban them. I said, but wait a second. If you ban them, then people will be more willing to use their product because they won't be terrorized by the few shysters who use the remedies. You understand, if you don't know what the remedies are in your contract, then you think that beneficial finance is the same as Shady Sam's finance, and you can't find them in the contract. So in fact, by limiting the remedies, you actually can increase the demand for credit. Well, the industry hated me, but at, then they admitted we were actually right. <laughs> OK, regulators. Yes, they're to be, oh, look, toilets are standardized, right? I go into Home Depot. I like to you know, do home repair or whatever. I mean, I want to redo a bathroom. I just buy whatever. And it all fits. Why? Because they're all standardized. Any toilet I buy in Home Depot will fit in my, and connect up and everything like that perfectly, right? The sink connects up. Everything connects up perfectly. If I were into you know, designer stuff, no, okay. But I'm not there. Toilets are standardized, 
No, nothing about credit cards, no attempt. So the regulators don't even attempt, and, and the public, well, they have no clue. Economists, as Todd documented, no one is asking us. No one is asking us. Okay, so that's kind of omitted, the idea of standardized products. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, changes, okay, neglected but not omitted, changes in the way consumer credit, this is implicit and even implicit, but the way we're doing consumer credit regulation has totally changed in this country, right? Fair Credit Reporting Act, that was the result of the National Commission on Consumer Finance. There was a whole bunch of academics and some politicians, right? And we actually paid attention to, okay, to economists. Credit practices rule, there was a lot of really good research commissioned before they adopted the rule. And there are other cases of this where you actually do good economic research before you legislate. Now we got Dodd-Frank. <laughs> you forget it. That nobody's, nobody's doing any research to support that baby. None at all. I mean, it's just, and of course, I think the people, if they did, they'd just, wow. But uh, no, no research at all, okay? The disturbing lesson is that the muggles are proposing changes without any economic analysis. Okay, unfair, deceptive, and abusive. All the things that CFPB is supposed to deal with, they're all muggle speak. There's no mention of efficiency. How about cost of credit? Shouldn't they be worried about, no, they don't worry about the cost of credit. We have an agency that's supposed to protect consumers that is not worried about the price of the product that they pay or its availability, right? It's just that this high price has to be charged for everybody and you have to label it and, and you can't, I don't know how you abuse the people, but whatever. You can't abuse them with a loan contract. But the fact that the APR is going up by 300 basis points is of no concern to this agency. Or the fact that the people can't get credit at all is of no concern. You aren't treated unfairly, you're just, you know, you're no longer credit worthy, period. We didn't abuse you, we just didn't give you a loan. How can you be abused? <laughs> okay, neglected but not omitted, the last one is how much low, I, I, Todd talked about how much, okay, the whole idea uh, that the, the NCCF, uh, uh, of the NCCF was to get low-income Americans shopping freely in our economy so they could go to Target and Walmart. That's the whole idea. The alternatives of loan sharks and illegal credit sources are only kind of mentioned briefly in the book, although Todd covered them here, so it makes me look bad. But what about Friendly Fred? There's only a brief mention to Friendly Fred. I always talk to my students about Friendly Fred, right? Friendly Fred never charges, there's no finance charge. We can't even measure finance charges in our country in 1980. You know why we can't? Because this is not a finance charge. You buy an $800 TV for $1,500. There's no finance charge at all. Low-income people used to shop in an entirely different set of stores, okay? Read some anthropology. Joe Harrington's Hard Living on Clay Street and talk about, uh, uh, in D.C. and talk about who the people dealt with. It was a peddler economy. Low-income people didn't go to Walmart or Target the way we do now. And by the way, they're going to go back. That economy is coming back, baby. We have resurrected it. Yes, we have. 
And so, and if you think this is fun, it's not fun at all dealing with friendly Fred, but there's no credit, there's no interest rate. Muggles think that borrowers who can't get a subprime credit card are just gonna save. <laughs> this is insane. I mean, you know, there's all this muggle thinking that, oh, you know, if we have usury rate ceilings or, or whatever, then, then uh, you know, then we just, okay, the people will just, they'll just have to save, right? They can't qualify for credit. They'll just raise their FICO score. <laughs> we have laws against cocaine, people. How's that working out? <laughs> we have laws against all our drug laws. Does, does that stop it? Do you really think that passing a law against something stops it? Okay. Well, yeah, I guess if you're on cocaine, then you think that, oh, I didn't think of that connection. <laughs> <laughs> so the people on drugs and the muggles have something in common. All right, last. Oh, oh, omitted is borrow and employee fraud. This is a major concern, okay? Fraud by borrowers and employees is a major problem. I've done, I've done some consulting for some lenders, and I can tell you, wow. Stuff is going on, baby. Stuff goes on. It's a big problem. And the problem is lenders don't want to pursue it because they may get countersued for, you know, what are they, defamation of character? Yes, I think that's what the lawyers call it. All right. Um, in, the, uh, not, you know, in, the, in the last little unpleasantness, we had the mortgage market, 15% of subprime defaults never made a payment. It's called an EPD. That's 15% of the defaults never made a payment. EPD is a, euphem is a euphemism for fraud, right? Oh, gee, what are we doing about that? Nothing. Because the lender was abused <laughs> and deceived. <laughs> and that's okay. You can abuse and deceive the lenders, okay? The problem with this is the fraud and the employee theft affects the low-income people. They're the ones that get kicked in the groin and not lent to or paying higher. They're the ones that are paying for the fraud, okay? Not me, all right? I'm in a market where they don't have to worry about fraud. Finally, it, finally is financial literacy. I don't know how many pages of the text we're discussing about how borrowers discount. Do borrowers discount hyperbolically or constantly or whatever, future cash flows to a present? How do they exactly do it? The financial literacy tells us that most adults can't discount at all. They have no clue, okay? They're not numerate and they're not financially literate. I thought, I thought Todd did the research at the FTC with where they found out that people didn't know the trade-off between oh. points and rates on mortgages? You did that. No, that wasn't you. It wasn't you? No. I oh. think it was Jim Lacko. Jim Lacko. It was Jim Lacko. Well, I was there. Oh, all right, you were there. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, I, these things, I, I gave him credit for it, but Jim Lacko <laughs> did it. All right, uh, but in any event, no, they, did, they, they tested people, and they found out that people did not know that there was a trade-off between points and fees. I mean, what, what can I say? Okay, this omission really, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but you could then discuss the total failure of the public school system <laughs> to teach anything. By the way, I mean, you know, we have, we're, teaching, we're teaching remedial seventh grade algebra at GW to economics majors, and we have to throw out kids. And by the way, we're not the only ones, okay? They can't walk across the street. 
Well, there's a no. They, well, they they can dance across the street. Um, no, well, I'm talking about kids in college, and we're pretty selective. But by the way, I mean a lot of the most selective institutions now have kind of math tests and remedial math for kids who are going to go into STEM fields because they can't even do the basics, and they certainly can't discount and know anything about this. Okay, and this is a major problem not for society in general, but especially for consumer credit. Okay, so my conclusion is the muggles are treated, if they are treated fairly, and they're not abused or deceived, <clears throat> if they're financially illiterate, they're not gonna make good choices anyway. I mean, you know, this behavioral finance is beside the point, right? We've got, the, the people who have real problems are, are the people who actually can't do any computations to figure out what's going on. Which brings me back finally to my, my earlier point is, these are people who need the tire buying model. Okay, That's the model that they need if we're going to get improved decision making by consumers. Thank you. Thank you. It's quite a lively discussion. I think we've got some time for a few questions. Um, and identify yourself, the microphone will come to you. Right. In, Thank in, you. Uh, yeah, my name is Michael Zack. I wrote a history of the Republican Party. Is it fair to say that in addition to ignorance, some of the motivation for this economic expansion is just to expand government power, that they know precisely what they're doing, and it makes people more beholden to the government instead of to a bank or financial institution? <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll just say, first I want to thank Heidi and, um, um, and Tony. Those just great, uh, great comments, uh, um, and, I, and I appreciate it. And um, hopefully I'll get a chance to refer to some of them. But, but I think that's an interesting question, Michael. I mean, one of the things I've wondered is um, at what point do you start assuming that un unintended consequences are really just stupidity? Uh, to what extent are they intended, right? Um, I mean, we're talk I mean, so what we've done is basically uh, with this, uh, with Dodd Frank, we've just pummeled uh, lower income consumers. As I said, uh, the the percentage of a low income consumers with credit cards dropped eleven percentage points uh, between uh, uh, I think twenty uh, like 2010, 2010 to twenty thirteen. 11 percentage points uh, uh, that they've done. Payday lending is boomed, right? Um, the, Dur the Durbin Amendment is just uh, wiped out bank accounts for a million low-income uh, consumers. And it's all so predictable, as, as Tony said. Yet at the same time, now what we hear, are, I mean, just, uh, I mean, can post office banking be a serious thing? I kept forgetting about it until people kept asking about it. But now they're talking about they're going to have the post office do, uh, 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 you know, uh, small, uh, you know, small loans and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so what you seem to what they seem to have done is systematically taken taken away the economic incentives to treat valuable uh, low income consumers as valuable uh, as valuable customers. Uh, uh, as just like they treat uh, the rest of us as valuable customers. They've taken away that incentive, and now it seems like what they want to, it, it, it almost seems like they had in mind from the beginning, coming back with the other hand and compelling 
uh, uh, either I increasing the government directly, compelling the banks to, to lend that basically uh, Community Reinvestment Act on steroids, right? Basically for requiring provision of services uh, to all these uh, all these folks. And it's so predictable, you start to wonder at some point if it really is unintended. You, you mean be. having like a Fannie Mae for consumer finance might turn out badly? <laughs> it just might. Uh, in the far back. Um, in um, Professor Yezer's talk, you talked about employee fraud as though it were something we were all familiar with. I'm not at all familiar with who these employees are and why they do this. Okay, uh, I can't say much about consulting issues, um, but uh, if you look at the news reports, for example, um, some of the offices of Countrywide were almost kind of criminal conspiracies. Um, the industry a number of years ago noted that loan officers, of course, would kind of improve the <clears throat> application artificially. That is, they would have TurboTax on their computer, you know, to generate a, their own tax report, uh, uh, the, the tax uh, data for the individual. And uh, then they would select, they would get a nice fee for qualifying the, uh, the, um, uh, the individual. When these individuals are discovered, uh, the lender just fires them, and they make it as quiet as possible. And, and the reason for that, and, and, and by the way, and there's no list of them, so they just go work for somebody else. They actually asked to have a list, because if they did have a list, the problem is they could be accused of defaming the individual. They'd be sued, and so they decided you couldn't have a list. So there's a, there's a problem there. It's a legal problem. All right, but uh, within the industry, if people are engaged in falsely qualifying people, which is the way the employees, I'm not saying they take money out of the till, they can do that too, but usually there's no money in the till at a lender, um, except maybe pay, it's all okay. I mean, they have records, but uh, uh, no, they falsely qualify individuals and then they take uh, side payment for having, uh, for having done that. And the difficulty we have here is that the, the employer just doesn't want to prosecute. <clears throat> well, no, I mean, no, people have it. In, I mean, <laughs> when you say the free market, I mean, it, you, you need law enforcement. I mean, we need contract enforcement. And, and I'm, I'm uh, fairly certain there's and, been fraud and, and in some cases. Look, well. some cases there were criminal conspiracies, whatever. Again, I, I don't want to talk about the, uh, but we had, you know, we had situations in which, I'll just say this generically, uh, Automobile dealerships were kind of taken over by the mob uh, because the automobile dealerships became less valuable, right? It's just like in the savings thrift crisis, thrifts were taken over by essentially mobsters who looted them, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, most famously Madison Guarantee, but, but uh, so the, these things happen, right? And there's no consequence for the people, as you well know, in the case of Madison Guarantee, as you know, in the case of the Ke you know, Mr. Keating and the Keating Seven, right? It appears actually that this kind of behavior qualifies you to run for president of the United States. 
But I mean, I, I don't know what to say, but <laughs> we have an enforcement problem in the area of financial fraud. And let's keep in mind that, you know, when you have a system characterized by either implicit or explicit guarantees on the side of investors, you have reduced the incentive for the investor side of it to monitor for fraud, which, of course, is one of the reasons, in my opinion, you see fraud so much more prevalent in the mortgage market. Or, or if I could, just a, oh, another way to look at it, while I think most people agree that the financial crisis wasn't caused by fraud, which might make it different from the SNL crisis, where fraud seemed to be a much bigger piece of it. I don't think anybody thinks that means there wasn't quite Absolutely. a bit of fraud. John Swallow, uh, Arlington, Virginia. Um, this, your, your comments about unfair, deceptive, and abusive, but not caring about the cost of credit reminds me by analogy of a book Sugar, salt, fat, where the federal government can regulate how much fat, sodium <laughs> and fat is in something, but there's an unlimited amount of sugar can be added. So is this, you know, and that that's clearly driven by industry wanting consumers to eat a lot, is is <laughs> you know lobbying essentially. Uh, is this would you say this is analogous that the financial industries lobbied to get? Dodd-Frank to not regulate the cost of credit in a similar way? Wow. I don't think the industry is happy with Dodd-Frank. I, I mean, oh, uh, as, a, uh, you know, as, as a piece of, uh, as a piece of legislation. So, uh, but I, I, the, the, re you know, the reason you don't want to worry about the cost of credit is because then you'd see that these things are all trade-offs. You understand the the depressing thing about economics is we teach students that you can't do good without doing evil. <laughs> that if Mother Teresa, you know, gives food to this person, she can't give it to that person. And so all you can do in life is have the marginal benefits exceed the marginal costs. And of course, as a politician, you can't say that to the people. And then, because then you'd be subject to benefit cost analysis all the time, and you, you'd never be able to do much, right? If I could just. So, this is our problem. If I could just add on that, I mean, one of the things, you know, I testify a lot in Congress and uh, work with policymakers. And one of the things that really disturbs me over the past few years is <clears throat> the unbelievable desire to wish away the existence of unintended consequences, which is. It's no longer the case to say, well, I recognize there will be a cost to this, but we should do it anyway. There is a view that there are, are free lunches. Uh, that uh, that um, So it was kind of amazing on bankruptcy reform when I worked on that issue. Um, people said, well, who cares about bankruptcy? It's, it just comes out of the bank's profits, right? They really just believe that comes out of the bank's profits, uh, that you can, you know, slash uh, uh, interchange fees on debit cards and it'll just come out of the bank's profits, right? That it's not like that there's no pass-through, there's no competitive business, that sort of thing. And that I find very distressing, which is they just want to wish away unintended consequences or in the ultimate non sequitur, basically say, well, if there's unintended consequences, it's because bad people are doing bad things, right? <laughs> which doesn't make them go away, right? It's just like they, they just want to say, well, it's not my responsibility if people do things that I don't like. And uh, um, that I find is, I find that really disturbing. And I think it, it leads to a lot of these. So uh, if these the problems. government provides high powered incentives for, for people to do bad things, it's not the fault of the government. That's correct. Right. Well, right. One other one, one other point. Economists also have this thing about logical consistency. So at the one on one hand, we have FHA encouraging people to 
basically purchase houses with a 3% down payment and, you know, modi- uh, a, uh, a high uh, monthly payment to income ratio and what have you. And, uh, and then we even had seller finance where they had no equity in their buying. <coughs> so we're, we're really concerned about, we're, we're really concerned about subprime lending, but FHA is fine. At, at a minimum, it would be nice if government policy were logically consistent. You see what I mean? You know, I mean, look at the loss rates on, on uh, seller finance down payments under FHA, right? They, you know, they look like subprime rate, uh, loss rates uh, under the, if you have the same rate, rate of house price appreciation. So we are subsidizing, because now FHA has gone underwater, and in other ways it's subsidized anyway, we're subsidizing a program that encourages every bit as much risk-taking as any of the subprime lending that we're now trying to eliminate. Uh, you understand why, if you're an economist inside the Beltway, your head hurts a lot? <laughs> because at, at a minimum, logical consistency would, would be swell if, it were, if that were a criterion. So maybe if the CFPB said, everything we do has to be consistent with at least what FHA is doing. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, CFPB has raised the issue of reverse mortgages, and as, as you know, 95% of the reverse mortgage market is FHA. <laughs> I mean, they, they dominate that market. Uh, I, I think we're going to end with Todd making a couple minutes of responses to some of the, uh, the commentators' responses, and, and then we'll wrap up with that. Uh, well, well, thanks again. These comments were marvelous, and thank you, Mark, and the Federal Society, uh, Anthony Durdor, for uh, co-sponsoring this. Uh, it's, a real, it's a real treat, and these are, are, are great Great comments, especially um, Tony's observation that the book wasn't long enough, uh, that there were things that we uh, didn't talk about. But I just want to stress, uh, Heidi had a whole bunch of things. I won't bore you by um, uh, by talking about a lot of them, but there's, but there's basically two of them I do think were fascinating and are worth stressing uh, and lar- that I largely agree with, which is the first is um, what you talked about, you know, uh, the, uh, what, you know, we don't want people to know too much about this in some sense. And to reframe what she said in a different way is there is, I talked about two ways people might use credit. One is for capital goods. The second is for income smoothing uh, and expense smoothing. You may note I didn't talk that much about the second. And partly the reason is, is because people do not smooth income and expenses the way um, an economist would like. Um, and I had a, an episode with this a few years ago. I was talking to a reporter from CBS Market Watch uh, when the economy was headed towards a recession, and she called me up and she said, "Oh my God, what's going to happen? All these people are have all this debt on their credit cards. They're charging and that sort of thing." And I said, "Well, what would you do?" She said, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, what everybody's going to do is stop charging so much." <laughs> Right. Uh, which is they're not idiots. You don't just go 100 miles an hour over the cliff. Right. If you see the cliff approaching, you slow down. Now, that is, you know, that may be individually rational, but on a macro uh, perspective, it does raise this problem that Heidi identified, which is that it can it can magnify uh, consumer credit can magnify business cycles because consumer credit tends to be pro cyclical. You actually want when the recession comes, you actually want people to borrow more, not less. Uh, the natural tendency seems to be that people borrow less, and that's actually uh, something that um, is counterintuitive uh, to, to people and uh, um, is consistent with the point that, uh, that, that Heidi made. 
Um, the, the, the second thing is, um, Heidi asked about mortgage credit. I just want to take that in, in use to talk about something else we do talk about in the book. And we talk about mortgage credit that really you only talk about mortgage credit in situations where we think there's a topic where there's not been enough written on non-mortgage credit. So discrimination and that, that sort of thing. And so we have to kind of borrow that literature, but something we do not talk about that much, um, cause you know, it, it but, but is a big issue is student loan debt. Um, student, uh, you know, and if we think about mortgage credit as being, it seemed like some people took on more debt than they should have. It is clearly the case that people are taking on too much student loan debt. Uh, um, no, no doubt about it, right? Uh, student loan debt is past credit cards is the second, uh, you know, is um, the second largest um, source of non-mortgage consumer debt. Car loans are and always have been first. Car loans are big loans. And most people don't focus on how much, how big a car loan is, but car loans are big debt compared to uh, to credit cards. Uh, that's always first. But student loans, uh, you saw that chart how installment loans like started declining as revolving credit rose, and then it stopped. Beginning in nineteen in nineteen ninety two, student loan debt was one percent of the average household balance sheet. Now it's like twenty six percent of the average household balance sheet uh, during that period. Now that may be rational for consumers, right? Uh, um, uh, Michael asked the question about government involvement, right? You may have seen the recent stories, how rapidly, ever since the government took over the student loan program, how rapidly loan forgiveness is expanding, right? It was always a social engineering gimmick from the beginning, which was to basically have the federal government take over and forgive the loans of uh, com uh, you know, uh, uh, community workers uh, and make the investment bankers pay, right? It was always about social engineering, not about the cost of the student loan program. Uh, but my, my suspicion is that somewhere out there is some sort of student loan debt uh, a jubilee. But it does reflect the fact that there can be the fact that uh, people can obviously uh, uh, overborrow, that people can misuse consumer credit. But the point of the book is, having said that, there's no evidence that consumers systematically uh, misuse it or that, uh, um, uh, that the kind of regulations we've done in the past actually solved the problem. And I'll close on the last thing, which is one thing we don't talk about, is what might a pro-market, or as I say, a market reinforcing as opposed to a market replacing um, consumer uh, credit regime look like? And luckily, two of my co-authors are the authorities on the Truth and Lending Act, uh, Tom Durkin and Greg Ellihausen. If that's a topic you're interested in, they've written the best book hands down by far on the history, economics, and logic of the Truth and Lending Act, uh, where they talk about sort of uh, how a, they describe sort of what a robust, consumer-friendly, uh, competition, innovation-friendly uh, consumer uh, credit uh, regulation regime might look like. Um, and it doesn't look like how it evolved, which was this mishmash of disclosure and trying to use disclosure to change people's behavior and all this kind of kind of stuff. So, so that would be a topic for another day. But thanks uh, to Mark, thanks to Tony, thanks to Heidi, thanks to all of you for coming out. Uh, yes, uh, I, I want to thank uh, all of our panelists and, and thank our audience and welcome everybody to lunch. Uh, uh, if you just go up the spiral staircase all the way up to the second floor or take the elevator, the lunch will be on the second floor uh, and there are restrooms on this floor and on the second floor. I know our authors will be around too.